0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Yeah, so it's the same notes from last week. It's that sheet right there if you don't have it at the front. And the other sheet, there was one left over from the very first lesson, first two lessons if you want that. So our plan tonight is to only cover two verses, and that's Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4, which are still on the sheet from last week, and then next week, are we having this next week? I'm up for it, okay, yeah, because we also have Friday evening for a Good Friday service, but I'll be here next week, so our plan for next, next Tuesday is uh, to cover the rest of chapter 1. Okay, some some portions of Hebrews will go through a little bit faster, some will go through a little bit slower. And then our plan for the week after that is to cover the first part of chapter 2, and then the last part of chapter 2, and on and on through that. But we'll see how fast we, we get through it. Um, we're still dealing with the first, uh, the way that I've divided, and it's pretty common way to divide the book of Hebrews. You can find similar things in in a lot of commentaries, different outlines, Um, because the message of the book of Hebrews is something that's pretty obvious, that uh, it's a series of arguments, and I'm just going to call it arguments because they're like logical arguments in a debate that are, and this is really important, and we'll get to this more when we look at the rest of chapter 1 but it, you, they are based on the Scripture. Okay? And when I say the Scripture, they're based on what we call the Old Testament on the Hebrew Bible, uh, the New Testament having not been compiled completely by the time of the book of Hebrews, but they are based on the Scripture. And there are multiple, multiple places in the book of Hebrews where the Old Testament is quoted, and uh, many other places in the book of Hebrews where the Old Testament is alluded to. And depending on what version of the Bible you have in English, like particularly my version when the Old Testament is quoted, that the font is changed and it's set off a little bit like poetry, so you can see that that's a quote from the Old Testament. But it's just throughout the, the entire book of Hebrews. So a lot of those places we're going to look back at the context of those in the Old Testament. Some of them we're not going to. Um, but the, the arguments that are in the book of Hebrews, each one of them builds one upon the other so this first one really not so much of an argument these first four verses uh, but more more of an introduction or a thesis statement is what they would call it in school for an essay the beginning of the entire thing and then it and, and it's to reveal to us that uh, the revelation of The Son of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is superior to all revelations. And it shows us in these first four verses that Jesus is superior, that he is better than anything or anyone that could ever be. And I just want to remind you, I'm not going to go back through all the stuff we already covered, because we're going to be going through it as we go through Hebrews. But all of these arguments are presented with a very specific goal. The book of Hebrews is not written to unbelievers, not that you could not preach the gospel through the book of Hebrews because you could, but the book of Hebrews is written to Christians. It's written to Hebrew believers, to Jewish believers, who, as best as we can understand, lived at that time in the city of Rome. We talked about the kind of persecution that they were going through, the kind of pressure from their society, and there was a lot of pressure on them to compromise concerning Jesus Christ, to retreat back from the boldness that they had once had in Jesus Christ, so much so that it's even from the book of Hebrews that we see these, these verses that talk about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, to just stop going to church because it just wasn't working with the society that they were in. For many of them, it was a risk to their job. It was a risk to the education of their children. It was a risk uh, to, to, to a lot of different ways. And, you know, as Americans, I don't know. I, I think, excuse me, I got sniffles, by the way. So if I'm going, <laughs> sorry about that. But I know it's not so polite with the microphone on, but sometimes you have to do it. I do have some Kleenex there. But... um Uh, probably after going through the whole COVID thing, we kind of get it a little bit better. But we live in that same society today. You know, when I was growing up, if you were involved in sports, when I was growing up, in Oklahoma anyway, you never had even, you didn't even have practice on Wednesday night because everybody had church on Wednesday night. You definitely never had anything on Sunday because it was church, and you never had anything except some extremely rare, you know, kind of tournament or something that would even be on Saturday because that was a time for your family, you know, and the sports activities were organized to work around the family and around the church. And sports is just one area. Well, nothing in our society corresponds to that today. And to put church and the presence of God and the worship of God and his Sabbath, that's just one area. But to put that as first place in our lives today, well, it's really a sacrifice. It really is, and so a lot of the things that the Hebrew Christians in Rome were experiencing at that time, uh, I think everything they were experiencing we live in that today that's why I really was looking forward to sharing from the book of Hebrews because there's so much here for us to to understand. Um, Jesus is the best he is 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 better, so after we look at these verses next week we'll begin to look up what I'm calling the first argument that Jesus is better or he is superior to angels, okay, and that goes through the rest of chapter one, including verse four that we 're going to cover today uh, and to the end of, of chapter two. Well, it begins with angels, uh, and then each successive argument, the next one is that he 's superior to Moses. Each one of them builds upon the one before, okay So as we go through this it's leading us up to this kind of crescendo to this moment in the, in the uh, debate, if you will, and the arguments that are being presented, if you will. In the last chapters, it leads us up to the great chapter about the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and then on into chapters 12 and chapter 13 at the end, which is really the message of Hebrews is being brought home at, at that time. So, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. We reverence your word. We stand in awe before your presence, Lord. We thank you that you have cleansed us by your blood as we sang tonight, Uh, that you have welcomed us into your presence, that you have made a way for us to stand before you who, before whom all the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. That you have made a way and you have welcomed us into your presence, Lord, by your blood, Jesus. I pray that you would give us a revelation of your revelation. I pray that you would give us a revelation of your gospel. I pray that you would give us a revelation of your your superiority, Lord, that we would feel that on the inside of us, Lord, and not just assent to it with our minds, but really believe that with our hearts, that you are the very best, that you are all in all, and that if we have you, There is nothing better we could ever have, and if we have you, we could lose everything in this world, but we would gain our own soul, because we would have the very best, Lord. And if we don't have you, we could gain all the riches of this world, but we would lose our own soul, because we don't have you. I just pray that you would open your word to us this evening, and speak to us through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So, Hebrews chapter 1. I'll just read verses 1 through 4 again, just to put it all in the context. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us. Remember, we talked about all this in detail last week, that uh, the word was not complete, but it was progressive as it moves through the Old Testament time in the prophets. But today the word is complete because he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, or literally he made the ages. So we're going to begin now looking at verse 3. And again, I'm going to put it in the word order. That it comes in the original Greek for these, I'm, we're not going to do this through the whole book, but for these, these verses. And we're going to talk in great detail, not great, we'll still get done on time, but in enough detail about some very important words. Because these four verses are just loaded. I mean, they are just loaded. And there, there, there are such riches in these verses that cannot be passed over. Like I said, this is the thesis for the entire book. It's the opening for the entire book. It summarizes everything that's going to be said in in this letter. So, uh, in verse 3, we we read, And he is, and that's basically the beginning, but if you have little footnotes with your your Bible, uh, some of them you're going to see, some of the things I said last week, John... Slipped out somewhere. I don't know where. But last week he said, Wow, I found out tonight my study Bible is a really good one because everything you were saying was in my little footnotes. I said, Well, that's good. That's good. And um, But it begins in verse 3 with this statement Who being? Who being? That's how you would literally translate he is. Who being? In the Greek, um, this is two words it's os. On. It'd be like O-S-O-N. Os-on. And it's really powerful. Many of you have heard or have noticed in the Gospels there are times when Jesus says these words, I am. You know, and uh, it's, it's a really powerful statement because it's, it's relating back to the God of the Old Testament, that he is God. Well, this is a very strong statement Theological statement, just in these two words, so on, who being? So there's a statement that's made in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. And this is when God appears to uh, Moses, He meets Moses in the burning bush, and he commands Moses to remove his shoes, uh, to remove his sandals, because this is holy ground. And Moses knows that he's not just meeting with some angel, he's meeting with God. Himself, okay? He's seen and, and hearing the voice of Jesus Christ, though he doesn't know him by that name. Okay? Because no man has seen, remember this principle, that John states in chapter 1, no man has seen the Father at any time. That he is revealed in his Son. Okay? He is explained in his Son. That's going back to John chapter 1. Well, in Exodus 3.14, Moses is telling God well, if you're going to send me to set your people free, then you need to tell me your name because everybody's going to be asking what's the name of this God that, that sent you? And it's not going to be enough for me just to say that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because those guys lived 400 years ago. And you know you can forget a lot of stuff in 400 years. They need to know, they're going to want to know what your name is. And I think Moses is saying, I want to know what your name is. So there's something important about a name. You'll notice uh, the very uh, last uh, phrase of verse 4 that we're heading to, we're only looking at two verses tonight, is name, that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So this whole thing is about this name. And um, we don't really have this so much in the United States, but if you, you know, read, have ever read or enjoyed movies that are kind of more uh, medieval or fantasy literature type of things, I I think you have an understanding of this. In ancient cultures, and in many cultures today, uh, the name of a person had had a great deal of meaning. And really, it still has that that meaning in, in our lives today, but we just don't realize how important names are anymore. We've just forgotten that somehow. But, is that me? Oh, it's Michael and Gabriel. Turn those alarms off. Okay, so that that thing went off at 5.55 this morning. That was not pleasant. But anyway, um, the name, without knowing the name of the God, then, and I'm talking in, in pagan cultures also, you could not invoke the God. You could not pray to the God. You could not... Invite the God to intervene in your life. You have to know the name. You know, you think of fairy tales like Rumpelstiltskin. They had to find out what the guy's name was to to be able to stop the curse or something like that. And that's throughout mythology. and, And what's in mythology is most often something that's a reflection of truth that is in life. You guys really need to stop that, okay? Just take it away from him if he can't stop it. Give it away. Thank you. I'm always having to get on to kids while I'm up here these days. So, so he, want, he needs to know God's name or he can't experience God's power. Okay. And uh, so he asks him what his name is. And God tells him, you tell them that I am who I am. Well, this phrase, I am who I am, in Hebrew is related to the name of God that's, I think, like 5,400 times in the Old Testament you know, it's the most common word in the Old Testament that's, that's a name, obviously, and the name of, of God is, as we might pronounce it, as we think we pronounce it, because nobody knows exactly how to pronounce it, is Yahweh. Often, uh, we have said Jehovah, okay, and most often, everywhere in the English Bible, that's going to be translated as Lord, and I already mentioned this to you, if you have more modern versions, I think even in the King James, where it's written LORD and it's translating this, all caps will be in, in that place. But this is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's the, it's the name of God. Well, in Greek, in Greek, in, and remember that the Greek Old Testament is what most of these people were reading. Most of them did not speak fluent Hebrew, okay? If you remember in the book of Acts, they thought it was quite amazing that Paul could speak Hebrew. Okay, And uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, which was translated approximately 200 years before the birth of Christ, this phrase where God speaks to Moses and says, I am who I am, he says, and just listen to how it sounds, Ego imi hoon. Here it says, os. Who being. There it says, who is, or who being. I am the existing one. I am the one who exists. Our Father who art in heaven. This prayer reflects this same thing. That he is the existing one. In Russian iconography, You know, in Russian Orthodox Church and in the Greek Orthodox Church, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, they have icons, right? Catholics have statues, and Greek Orthodox have icons. It's a very common uh, inscription on an icon above an icon of Jesus or Mary and Jesus, one of those things, if you can imagine what that's written. Uh, You're going to see these Greek words written there, ho-on, or what we read here, os-on because it's the name of God, okay? And it's been recognized as such for all these thousands of years. So when it says, who being, already, that's to draw, that, that would, if you were a Hebrew Christian at that time in Rome, it would draw your attention to the name of God in the Old Testament, to the name Yahweh, which is, you know, still his name. And then it says what? It says, who being, the radiance. Well, the first thing I want to say about this is that, um, notice in verse three it says, well, in my Bible it says he is, but it says who being, right? In verse four, it says having become, having become. Now, there's a difference between being and becoming, right? Being speaks of who he is. Becoming Speaks in a sense of what he has accomplished, what he has done. You understand? And that, that's really important, but we'll get to that in verse 4. So everything we're looking at in verse 3 talks about who he is, who the Son of God is, who Jesus is. And it says, who being the radiance of his glory. That's the first phrase that it says, radiance of his glory. So I want to talk about the word radiance just for a couple of minutes here. So the word radiance, uh, it's, a, it's a, a not a common word, and we find it only here in the New Testament. The word radiance in the Greek, you don't need to write this down or anything, it's not a big deal. I'll give you a couple of Greek words that you should write down if you've got a pen. But uh, this word is "apavgasma." A That's not so important, (laughs) but the word means, uh, there's an English word that we're not so familiar with, but it means uh, effulgence, effulgence, you can look it up, E-F-F-U-L-G-E-N-C-E. It means the radiant splendor, it means the brilliance. So if you remember from science class, you know my kids, even little science class when you're a little kid, you learn about some stuff about the sun, right? And if you look at the sun, which isn't a very wise idea to look at the sun for very long, but if you look at the sun, you know that you don't actually see the sun itself. You see the radiance of the sun. The sun itself is invisible to your eye. You can get closer to seeing the sun itself if there is an eclipse or something like that, or it's an extremely cloudy day. And then you'll see, perhaps you'll see the crown around the sun. But you're really not looking at the sun itself, as best as, we, as I can understand that from those science classes we've gone to. But, but you're looking at the radiance of the sun. You see the radiance of the sun. So that's what this word apophysma is. It's the radiant splendor of something. It's the brilliance of something. It's what you see. It's what reveals the glory. Okay? You don't see the glory we even sang about that tonight in holy 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 the song you're not seeing the glory perhaps you're seeing the radiance of the glory but the truth is there's no difference you're seeing the glory because you see the radiance of the glory i remind you of what jesus says in john chapter 14 that if you have seen me you have seen the father when the disciples say to him Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, I don't get it, guys. I've been with you all these years, and you haven't seen me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's what's being spoken of here. He is the radiance of the glory. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit more information about this word radiance, because hopefully it kind of puts you in the seat of the original readers. When you're reading the scripture, the closer you can get to being the original reader, it it helps you to understand what the scripture is saying, because it was written to a specific audience. So what what we call loosely between the testaments, when the Old Testament was completed until the New Testament was, until Jesus came, it was approximately 400 years. And no prophet is speaking during those 400 years. But it doesn't mean that God isn't saying anything, right? And there are actually a great deal of writings, Jewish writings, between the Testaments. And they're written in, as far as we know anyway, they were penned originally in Greek, whereas the Hebrew Bible is written originally in Hebrew. And these, many of these are collected together. into what we call the Apocrypha. If you have a Catholic Bible, it's going to have the Apocrypha apocrypha in it and there's nothing evil or wicked about these books or anything. They're not the inspired word of God. Some of them th- don't really add a whole lot to it if you if you read them, but a lot of them do, and especially the historical ones and the what you call the wisdom literature. There's some good stuff in there. You can read it and you immediately know this just doesn't isn't the same as the word of God, but it's like a really good commentary or really good information on this between The Testaments. So, in that period, this particular word, and the reason I'm bringing this out, again, isn't just because this is some interesting note, but because all of these original readers would have been familiar with this. Okay? Because this is huge in the culture they lived in. In the culture of the synagogue and the culture of the temple. So, this particular word radiance, apophagosma, this Greek word, was, had, had a philosophical, almost a theological meaning to them, okay, because it was used in the wisdom literature during that time, and I'm going to give you some examples, there's a book called Wisdom of Solomon, it wasn't written by Solomon, it's just called that, and uh, in chapter 7, verse 26, in Wisdom of Solomon, talking about wisdom, now you'll remember that in Proverbs, wisdom is a big theme, right? And there's a correlation between wisdom and, and God. And it even talks about how wisdom was with God in the very beginning, and wisdom is personified there. So during this intertestamental period between the Testaments, I want you to understand that the, the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish teachers, the Jewish culture and religion was, in a sense, struggling to understand what God was doing. And, you know, you know when God is doing something. If you're even trying to listen to God, you know he's doing something. I mean, you know God's doing something in America today. You don't know for sure what it is. You know, one day you think, oh, we're on the verge of revival. The next day you think we are utterly doomed. You know, excuse me, but when the president of the United States talks about somebody's ice cream and, I don't know if you saw that. I mean, sometimes you think, I have no idea what's going on in this crazy place. But you know God is doing something. So they were struggling to understand what God was doing and what was coming. I mean, you can understand that, you know, Jesus is called the, the morning star, that this morning star was, was already dawning. You know, there's, there's this gospel getting ready to burst upon the world. Everything's going to change. And so in these writings, oftentimes you can sense that. And this, this is a part of that. So the idea of wisdom was a really important one to them. But they, you remember from school, you know, you've got like Plato and Aristotle. And, you know, philosophy was a really big deal in the world that they lived in. And so they, you know, you know how as Christians, sometimes we try to Christianize ideas from the world, <laughs> you know, like simply Christianize a song, we used to say we're saving songs, you know, we would take some, some worldly song that we like to tune to, and we'd add some Jesus words to it, <laughs> to make it a little bit better, and um, anyway, they, they were struggling with all this, how do you, uh, what's going on in the world around us, in other words, and so in Wisdom of Solomon, for example, it says, wisdom is a reflection of or you might say it's the same word, the radiance of eternal light. And then it goes on to say, it is a spotless mirror of the working of God. You know, the theme of the mirror is in the New Testament also. And it is an image of his goodness. And we'll look at this tonight, that Jesus is the image of God. And they're calling it wisdom, okay? So it's this understanding of the spirit of God that they don't get, they don't really understand, but they're trying to understand it. Then there's a very, very famous philosophical uh, Jewish writer by the name of uh, Philo or Philo of Alexandria. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Uh, I mean, extremely famous, and uh, all of his works are translated into English. And in uh, some of it, and he uses this term. For example, in one of his books called or his treatises, they're not books really, because they're not that long but in one of them that has to do with special laws. He says that God's breath in Adam's nostrils was a radiance, this same word, a radiance emitting. That's how it's translated into into English. That God's breath was, was this same word that's said about Jesus. It was a radiance emitting from his or God's blessed nature, okay? And then in his treatise on creation, he says that man's intellect is connected with divine reason. And that man's intellect is a radiance of the blessed nature of God. Remember the New Testament talks about how we have the mind of Christ. Again, this isn't scripture, but they're trying to understand what's going on in the spirit. And then in his... Uh, writing on planting, he has has a whole treatise on planting gardens and things like that. He wrote about a lot of stuff. He wrote about drunkenness. He wrote about all kinds of things. But um, in his, uh, because he just goes through the Old Testament and takes on topics. But in his treatise on planting, he says that earth, the earth that we live on, nature, what we see in this earth, actually kind of like this, earth is created by God as a splendor emitting from the holy things of heaven. Okay, and he uses this same word again. And I've given you that so that hopefully you can somewhat feel if you were a good Jew and you received this letter, what that would mean to you for it to be written that it's not wisdom, that's close. It's not the beauty of nature, that's close. It's not the intellect of man, it's close. You know, It's not these things that you've been struggling with for these 400 years and the synagogue is still struggling with. But it is Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is your intellect. He is the entire earth itself. He is all in all. He is the wisdom of God. And when you have Jesus, you have everything. So he is the radiance of his glory. Then next it says... He is the and the exact representation of his nature, so we need to talk about the word exact, the words in English, exact representation, and about the word nature. Okay, because these are really important theological terms, and they they have a lot of meaning into them, but they're also very simple. So the first term that's translated in my Bible as exact representation in Greek is charakter. You can write down, if you're writing notes, character. Because that's where we get our word character from. Charakter. It's character. He is the character of his nature. So, you already kind of understand what that is. Because you know what character is. Especially, and of course, we should be thinking here of good character, not of bad character. But let me tell you what the word means. Okay? And it's very basic, original meaning. Very basic original meaning, it has to do with scratching on the surface of something else or making a mark that impresses on something else, okay? And its very basic meaning is an inscription. It's an impression, okay? It's a stamp. You know, a stamp makes an impression. And if you think of a stamp like in one of those Cecil B. DeMille movies, you know, not the kind of stamp we have now where we use ink, But the kind of stamp where you had wax, you know, and you take your ring and you place that stamp into that wax and it leaves an impression. In its kind of technical sense and its original sense, it has to do with the striking of that wax, if we're using wax. And it has to do with the mark that's left on the wax after you strike it. But by the time the scripture was written, it had already come to mean pretty much what we mean by character. When we talk about the character of a person, we talk about their outward actions, what we see, what they show us, how they act, and that reveals to us who they are on the inside. Because we can't see the inside of a person. I can't see a person's motives, you know. I can't see a person's heart. I can only see their actions, right? And I can only see their words. And if I know that person really well, like I know my wife, like I know my kids, like I think I know you guys, then, then, you know, sometimes if you show some bad point of character, I know that's not really you. You know what I'm saying? Because I have seen your heart already because of character. But if I don't know anybody at all, then you're going to pick up on their character first of all, whether it be a good character or a bad character. It's this, this stamp, this inscription, impression, image. It's your character. So there was a, uh, a phrase concerning the character, or more like a, a legal principle concerning character. And we have these same legal principles today. Uh, not maybe to this extreme, you know, but when certain documents are formed out in the right way, they have the right, you know, Steve could tell you more about stuff like this, but they have the right stamps on them or the right signatures on them or they're registered in the proper way, then that... Has legal authority, even though you're looking at a piece of paper, you know, if you get if there's a warrant for somebody's arrest or something like that, it's the same thing as if that judge is standing right there and saying, Arrest that person, right? You know, that that is the it's a piece of paper, but it's the same as that person. So the word character was used in a uh, legal principle in the Roman Empire at that time that the character, the character, the character of the emperor and that meant the stamp of the emperor is the emperor himself wherever his character was that's where the emperor was okay so it's really important because again wherever Jesus is the father is there he is the character of the father's nature okay so let me give you a couple of, of scriptures one of them you don't have to open these because you know them really well if you've got a bible you want to go to them real fast Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they're asking him if we should pay taxes uh, to Rome or not. And in verse 20 of this, well, in verse 19, he says, show me the coin used uh, for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, so the coin was just like our coins today. We got George Washington on the side of the quarter and Something's written there, right? United States and God we trust, etc. And it, it said there, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Well, these words, likeness and inscription, neither one of them in the Greek are character. Neither one of them in the Greek are character. The word likeness is. Is the Greek word eikon. You can write that down if you want. It's where we get the word icon from. It's the icon. Whose image? It means image. Whose image is this? But both of these things together, image and, uh, 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 what does it say, inscription, likeness and inscription in my Bible, image and inscription, the picture that's there, And the name, the words that are there, both of those together are charakter. They are the character of the Roman emperor. And so Jesus says, that's the character of the Roman emperor. That's his likeness. That's his inscription. So give it back to him. If he asks for it, give it back to him because it belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. But you don't give to God the things, you don't give to him the things that belong to God. So very simple question where is the image and the likeness of God the Father it is Jesus Christ and where does he live he lives in our hearts so it's very simply saying you never give your heart you never give your conscience you never give your soul to caesar you give him the money but you give your heart to god okay and then in second corinthians chapter 4 and I'm bringing out this word icon now because it's pretty important in Hebrews too, and we'll get to it later. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read, um, well, it says in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Unbelief, blinds your mind, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the word icon. Jesus Christ is the image of God the Father, and His gospel is the image of His glory. Okay? When we read the Bible and we believe the word of God, we have an encounter with God himself on a daily basis. He walks with us. He talks to us by his Holy Spirit through his his word. So Jesus is this image, this character, the character, the exact representation. The exact representation of what? Well, it says the exact representation of his nature. Okay, now... Put your thinking caps on just for a minute, okay? Because this word nature here is an extremely important theological term, and it's very important in Hebrews. I, I promise you we won't do this to every verse as we're going through Hebrews, but we need to do it now. This word nature in the Greek sounds like this, hypostasis ipostasis, but I'll give it to you simpler. It has a prefix, and it's what we usually say in English as hypo, like a hypodermic needle, and hypo means under. And then it has a root word, which is stasis, which means, just like in English, stand. Okay? And this hypostasis simply means substance. That's what substance means, by the way. <laughs> substance. What stands under. Okay? And this word, substance, was used in science, it was used in many different ways, just as it is today. But theologically, and again, every Hebrew believer would know this because it was used this way in the, the rabbinical teaching of the time. Theologically, it means the invisible, transcendent reality of God. This is the substance of God, who God really is, but you can't see it, and it transcends all uh, attempts to empirically uh, understand it. You can't touch it, you can't see it, no man has seen God at any time. Well, before the invention of microscopes, uh, they understood already that there is an apostasis in the things that exist. but we can't see that. There are some elements down there on the inside. These are made up of things. You know, we can see water, right? But we cannot see hydrogen atoms and we cannot see oxygen atoms. But we know because we took science, but we don't know this really on our own. I don't think any of us here are scientists that can prove this, like you've actually seen this, Study this with a microscope or something, you know, but it, the, the truth be known, they just don't tell you this in the younger grades, that even atoms and all that, it's a theory. You know, it's the best theory we have to understand substance, what's really there. So we have an example of that in the natural world, but of course when we come to God, it's all the more so. You can't see God. No man has seen God at any time. But so these are powerful words. Like I said, this is, this is loaded. It says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the invisible, transcendent reality of the Father God. If you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. So I'm going to move on. We're going to come back to this word, and we'll come back to it throughout the book because it's pretty important. Substance, I'll just call it that, okay? So it says, uh, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and the one who is upholding all things, okay? So all things in the Greek means all things. (laughs) It simply means absolutely everything. It means the same thing it means in English. I just want to draw your attention that the words here say all things. Everything. He is upholding everything that exists. The word upholding in the Greek is the verb pharaoh. It's where we get like a, the word ferry, like a, a boat that takes you across to the, to the other side. Pharaoh. And it simply means, it's the same in Latin, same in English. It simply means to carry a load from one side to another. It speaks of movement. So upholding, that's how my Bible translates it, but it's more than just upholding, because upholding, you could be like, you know, Atlas, holding the world up, never really knew what he was standing on, but, you know, holding the world up, Atlas, and you're just standing in place, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying he's carrying everything that exists on his own shoulders. He's upholding everything, all of life, all of movement, everything that exists, and this is what these intertestamental writers were trying to to figure out and they were struggling with and what's this wisdom what is the nature of this world everything we know it has some tie to god but we don't know what it is and that tie is jesus christ he is upholding all things you know that's why it's not a waste of time to pray over your garden it's not a waste of time to pray over your kids it's not a waste of time to pray over anything i got a lesson from my son frank tonight uh, in the car on the way here because I told him he had to study for his Bible test tomorrow because, you know, they're homeschooled. He has this little sheet he's supposed to fill out and study and he sits in the car and it's all blank and, he's, and I said, why didn't you fill that out? He goes, oh, I thought you meant we were going to do it together. I said, all right, let's do it while we're driving. So he's driving and, and he reads the question. It said, uh, what was the sin of Joshua before they went against the city of Ai? okay. And uh, Frank immediately says, uh, the sin was that he did not inquire of God. He just presumed that everything would go as planned because it had been going as planned. He didn't pray. I, I said, well, look in the book. Is that what it says? He goes, oh, I know it's what it says. He gives the book. Yeah, that's what reads it to me. The same exact thing. Go, All right, great. And then I thought about that. Man, what, what a word from God. How often do we just presume that everything's going to work out okay? And we wait until everything's messed up really bad before we pray about it and talk to him about it. But he is upholding everything in our lives. He is carrying it all on his shoulders. It's a burden that he carries. And all he asks from us is to take his burden that's light and easy upon ourselves. And then it says, the one who is upholding all things by the word. So how is he upholding all things or with what is he upholding all things? It says, by the word of his power. So again, I need to draw this out. The word word here is not logos. The word word here is rima, or rema. some people say. And it means a spoken word. It means a verb. It's an action verb, okay? Logos would be more like a noun, and rima more like a verb. The spoken word, the verb, the saying, or the statement of his power. And I just want to tell you ahead of time, the statement and the the saying, the verb of his power is his gospel. His gospel upholds all things. Everything. If you're looking for something to get educated in, there is nothing better to be educated in than the gospel. Because when you know and understand the gospel, you have wisdom. Remember, we were talking about wisdom. They're trying to get these ideas figured out. You have mind. You are able to understand everything that exists. You can figure out engineering. You can figure out rocket science if God wants you to do that. When you know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you don't know the gospel, you can have as many doctorates after your name as you want. And you can probably find plenty of examples of this in our modern culture and still be a complete idiot. You don't know anything. Even though you have all this knowledge, you don't know anything because you don't know Jesus Christ. So he upholds all things by the word, by the spoken word of his power. And then next it says in the Greek, having made purification of sins. You see where it it says that in uh, uh, verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. Well, literally it says having made purification of sins. But this is kind of important, and it's not brought out in English. I haven't found any English translations where this is brought out. In the Greek it says, by himself having made purification of sins. Okay, And it's not a really big deal, but it's a huge deal. He did this by himself. He did this without our participation. He did this just like the covenant was made with Abraham. You just go to sleep, and I'll make the covenant, and I'll let you in on it. Because if we had had any part in it, we would have messed the whole thing up. But by himself, having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So, I'm going to talk about the word majesty in a minute, but first I want to talk about purification. We're not going to look at all the Greek words here because we're going to come to all that stuff later. But notice in uh, verse 3, it says purification of sins. And then look way over in chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 17, it says propitiation for the sins of the people. So purification of sins, and your Bible might have a different word, and propitiation for sins are speaking about the same thing from different sides of the mountain, in a sense. Purification of sins is what He did for us. Propitiation for our sins is what He did toward God. It's called reconciling us with God. That He purified our sins by His blood. He plunged us beneath the cleansing flood, as we sang tonight. He washed us by his blood and purified our sin. But that wasn't all he did. He also made peace with God the Father for us, the propitiation for our sins. There's a great English word. It's the word atonement. And the word was actually coined, um, not by Tyndall, by by Wycliffe. Uh, By John Wycliffe, the first English translation of the Bible. And he coined this phrase, this word, to, to uh, uh, convey these meanings. And uh, the meanings of the mercy seat. And we're going to get to all this. It's all in Hebrews in the Old Testament. And the word in English that he coined simply means atonement. If you remember how to spell it. At one meant. That you are made one with God. It's the meaning really of righteousness. It's what righteousness means. That you are in a right relationship with God. If you've ever had any separation with your kids or a friend or something like this, you know what it feels like when you have atonement. When suddenly everything's okay. You can hang out with each other. You can look each other in the face. Everything is as it should be. And that's what atonement is. So having by himself made purification of sins. Atonement. He, sat, he finished the work. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So the word majesty in Greek, and I won't give it to you, just to not bore you, but the word majesty in, in Greek is also a rare word in the New Testament. Well, the word majesty in English is rare in the New Testament. And uh, if you have a Bible like mine, it's capitalized, a capital M, because it's talking about God the Father. He is called the majesty. But this word... The prefix of the word is mega. Everybody knows that word, right? So this, this word, it means one who is superior to all. You know, your majesty. You know, and we know what the word majesty means. It's superior to everyone. But notice what it says about Jesus, that he sat at the right hand of the majesty. To sit at the right hand means that he is one together with the Father. He is on equal footing with the Father, with the majesty. That he is one together with the Father. So there is no one who is superior to his majesty. And that means that there is also no one who is superior to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is seated upon high. And this is going to be hugely important as we move on through this. Because it's going to start telling us that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers that we're his friends. We already see that, that he's made uh, a purification of our sins. I mean, just try to think of that. Your sins are purified. You know, things that you think stink in your life, just think about this. Things that right now, tonight, you think this stinks in my life, and you want it cleaned up, and you, and you know it's no good. And, and God wants it cleaned up on this practical level. But it will never, it could not be cleaned up if it wasn't for the truth that it's already been cleaned up. That it doesn't, you don't stink to God anymore. You may have some stuff of the flesh, everybody does, but it's, you're growing in Christ. You're struggling to grow. You know, I don't think that my grandkids stink because their alarms went off. They're just not mature enough to figure that out yet. They think that's funny. But it's totally normal when you're seven years old. You know, God is not against us. Jesus has purified us of our sin. He loves us, okay? And, and, and he, we are welcome in his presence. We don't stink to God. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we'll get to it later. It's a, it's a major theme in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is seated on high at the right hand of the Father it means that he is superior. Buddha is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Muhammad is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Billy Graham is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and I'm so thankful to God for that, because I cannot have a personal relationship with Buddha, Muhammad, or Billy Graham. But I have a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus made this atonement in his own blood. That's another major theme that continues throughout the book of Hebrews, uh, that the high priest had to offer up a sacrifice once a year to make atonement, and it never really worked. It just worked for that year (laughs) because it was the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus makes atonement for us forever. That's throughout the book of Hebrews, and that because of this atonement, this at one meant. We've already seen that he is the heir that he has inherited, that we join, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We join in the inheritance of God's glory through the radiance of his son. In the book of Hebrews, this big theme keeps repeating, that if you go back to the religion of Judaism, and as great as it may be, but having received the light, having seen the radiance of the sun, if you go back into the days of the shadows, not complete darkness, but if you shrink back into the shadows, then you have denied Christ and you lose Christ. Because Christ is not in the shadows. He is in the daylight. He is the radiance of God's Son, the radiance of his glory. So let me give you a a couple of other verses about this nature of God, the substance of God. I think we'll get through verse 4. Not very much. We'll get through it fast. Um, If not, we'll do it next week. The substance of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Everybody know that verse? It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Has anybody ever heard that verse before? Has anybody ever memorized it? Everybody knows that verse, right? Assurance in my Bible. King James is going to say substance because it is the word substance. It's a very important word in the book of Hebrews. So just take those two verses alone and notice that in the opening to the book of Hebrews, it is written that he is the exact representation of the substance of God, the invisible reality of God. And then in the closing chapters of Hebrews, it says faith is the substance of God, or the faith is the substance of things hoped for. Well, what we hope for, our resurrection, is the glory of God, the inheritance that we are entering into. So we learn something from this. Just as radiance is to glory so character is to nature or to substance on our part our faith in jesus christ our faith in the word the spoken word of his power our faith in the gospel of jesus christ that is the substance it is the invisible transcendent reality of the reality of the glory that we hope to inherit. We've not inherited it yet. None of us have been raised from the dead yet, right? We still struggle. We still have these lives that we live here on this earth, and we all know that someday there's a day coming when if Jesus doesn't come back first, we're going to die. But our hope is, and it's not the kind of hope you have, biblical hope isn't like, hope on this earth, like I hope I get an Xbox for my birthday or something like that, things you hear from kids, you know. But it's a kind of hope that's a biblical hope that's an assurance of resurrection, of entering into the kingdom of God, of eternal life, of living with Jesus Christ, of being filled with joy, of having life eternal, of having life abundant. And all I have today, the only proof I have of that today, is Faith, And sometimes we look at that like, oh man, all I have today is faith. It's the only proof I have. But faith is equated to Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the radiance of that glory. And my faith in Jesus, my trust in him. You know, faith and trust are the exact same word. In the Greek, there's only one word. In Russian, there's only one word. They're both used for faith and trust. My trust in, in Jesus That I believe in Jesus. Faith, believe, trust, all one word. I believe in Jesus. means I've taken hold of Jesus. And I'm walking and living together with Jesus. And so because I have Jesus, I have the radiance, that means I have the Son. Because I have the character, that means I have the King. I have everything because I have Jesus. And if I shrink back from from Him, and shrink back from my faith, then I lose everything. And we need to understand that not just on a whole life level of like, I'm going to quit church or something, but on a practical level in our lives every single day. Are we living, breathing, walking by faith or by the law and by our own strength? And then the other verse is chapter 3, verse 14, that says, chapter 3, verse 14 It says, for we have become partakers of Christ. When we get there, you're going to love this word partakers, but that's not tonight. If we, notice the word if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Do you know the word assurance there is the same word, epostasis, substance, and the word our is actually not in the original. It says if we hold fast the beginning of substance. What's the beginning of God's substance from my point of view? Okay. This isn't his beginning from the point of view of eternity because he doesn't have a beginning. But there was a day in the life of each one of us. For me, it goes back to when I was a little child, and I really don't remember it very clearly. I remember very clearly the day I was baptized. But I was raised in a Christian home, and I thank God for that. For some people, they can remember very clearly their life before Christ and after Christ. But there was a day when there was a beginning of this hope in our life. And that beginning is simply called faith. Faith is the substance. Faith is the assurance. And he's simply saying here, if we hold on to that faith like a rope that's tied to the prize... That we know if we stay on this road, if we stay on this path, we've seen where it goes, we've got a spiritual GPS on the inside it's the Holy Spirit, and we've got a map in front of us, the Bible, and we can believe this, and we know that if we stay on this road, it leads to glory. If we hold fast to the beginning, if we hold fast to this faith. For as Acts 4, verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So I'm going to end very quickly here. We're going to look at verse 4, everything in verse 4. We've brought all all the ideas here in verse 3. Look at verse 4, again, taking it in the order that it's given to us in the original. It says, Having become so much better, and again, this is speaking of an accomplished work. Verse 3 is speaking of who he is. Verse 4, in a sense, is talking about what he has done or what he has become. Having become so much better. Uh, this phrase, so much, when we get to him, I'll show them to you. But it's used throughout the book of Hebrews. It's like Hebrews, Hebrews should have, if really, it should have exclamation points all over the place because it keeps saying, so much better, this is superior, this is the best. And, and if, you, if you look at this and you really read it carefully, you're going to see that it keeps talking about this is the best, the best, the best. He is so much better. The word better comes from the Greek word kratis, like Democrats. Not the, par- the party, but democracy. It means uh, power, it means strength. And literally it's saying here that he is so much more superior in power. He is so much stronger. He is so much mightier. He is so much better. He is so much more excellent. He has so much mastery over all others (coughs) that he is better than the angels. (coughs) Sorry. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about angels here. Because we're going to talk about them next week. The angels of God is what the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to talk about. Because angels, and I'll show you this next week, means first of all angels as we think of angels. But it also refers to all of God's messengers. So we're going to talk about Moses. We're going to talk about Aaron. We're going to look at this whole list of the heroes of faith in uh, chapter 11. You know, And so whoever you think the best Christian is that ever existed whoever you think the most powerful man of faith is or woman of faith is that ever existed you know whatever you think is it michael or gabriel michael and gabriel who you think the greatest angel is in the bible or something it's saying jesus is so much better so 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 much better that they're not even in the same league you don't even compare these people with jesus that Jesus is Jesus, (coughs) and they are angels. And because he is so much better, it says that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I've already talked about the name. The inheritance we're going to talk about later. It's a big theme in the book of, of Hebrews. But I do want to draw your attention to the word more excellent. So, remember I said that he is upholding everything by the uh, word of his power, and that this word upholding is the Greek word pharaoh, to carry something from one place to another. Well, this is the Greek word diaphoros, diaphoros, and this word comes from that same root meaning, and it means, I'll explain it to you better, but it means to carry something over from one side to another, That's what the prefix dia means, like a diagram or a dialogue to take something from one side over to the other. And what the word means as an adjective, um, it means something that is carried over and beyond. That it's over and beyond, like we say over and beyond the call of duty. It's more excellent in power. It's more excellent in its authority and in the scope of its authority (coughs) that it is so great, this name that he has inherited, that as the scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Whether that's in heaven or in earth or under the earth, if it's the greatest leaders of men that have ever lived, if it's the greatest and most powerful of all the forces of Satan, Satan himself, if it's the greatest and most powerful of all the angels of heaven, if it's the greatest and most humble of all Christians or the richest man that ever lived, it makes no difference. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess because he has been given the name that is above all names, a more excellent name than they. And as we've already talked about, and what Hebrews is going to say is, and you know his name. He's given that name to you. So the last thing I want to bring out here is about him having become. And I think I'm going to leave that for next week so I can put a little bit more of an accent on it. But I want you, I just want to say this one thing to you. So we we, oftentimes, especially in evangelical circles, we here, teaching, that is right teaching because it's, it's practical teaching on a practical level. Uh, sometimes it can, get, it can get off. But the, the teaching is that when Jesus walked in this earth, he did his miracles and the things that he did, he did as a man, which is true. He's a man. And we're going to get into all this. I mean, it's, it's, he's, a, he's man and he's God. And usually the idea in a teaching like that is that you will understand that God wants to work in your life, which is also true, and that you will understand that what Jesus said is true, that God wants to do greater works in your life uh, than he has even done through us and in us. And you've probably heard lots of teaching like that. But Hebrews makes a really important theological statement here that, that we have to understand that he never stopped being God. Okay? Sometimes people think that when Jesus died on the cross, that that was his humanity that died on the cross. Well, God can't die, so he didn't die. But he doesn't stop being God when he was born into the earth. His incarnation did not lessen his divinity. His uh, birth did not lessen his divinity. His suffering his death, none of these things lessened his divinity. Um, he never stopped being God. And in fact, Hebrews and we'll get I'll share more about this in the beginning next week, because it, verse four leads into the rest of it that Hebrews makes a big point to say that when we're dealing with who He became or whom he became, his suffering, his death, his resurrection the temptation that he endured, that all of these things, they did not lessen his relationship with God. They did not lessen who he is. Verse 3 talks about who he is. <clears throat> that in fact, they his obedience to go through that suffering is what makes his ministry better than that of angels. Because he was obedient to the Father. And we're going to, I actually love this part that's coming up when we get to it. But we're going to talk about the difference between a servant and a son. An angel is a servant and Jesus is a son. And to be obedient as a son is a whole different thing than to be obedient as a servant. But he was obedient as a servant. But if, he, if we don't understand that and know that about who he is, then we, we lessen, we water down his power. We lessen his presence and his majesty that he is seated at the right hand of the Father because let me tell you a little secret that sometimes we forget too. He's still a man. Jesus didn't stop being a man after his resurrection either. Okay? And sometimes we think, well, he became a man in his incarnation. We'll get into some of these kind of questions and that's true But it's also true that he is the son of man even before that. And before isn't really appropriate because we're talking about eternity. And when you're talking about eternity, you can't use all these words that are related to time. But the scripture does tell us that he was even crucified before the very foundation of the world. Um, I think I shared something about this, but not that long ago I heard somebody making some references that made it sound like the crucifixion was plan B. You know, because everybody rejected him. So... He had to be crucified. The crucifixion is not plan B. It's plan A. There is no plan B. God doesn't have plan Bs. I, I have plan Bs. You have plan Bs? because we need them? Because fi- we fail. But God does not have plan Bs. He has his plan, his only plan. Amen. So let's, let's stand together. Father, I just pray that some of the things that we looked at tonight, that I, I pray that there's a depth to them, but there's a simplicity to them, Lord, that, that we would continue... You know, as I look at these scriptures, Lord, it's just like looking at, to me, it's like looking at this, standing in a a gallery and and, and looking at this just amazing work of art, this beautiful painting, and you stand there for hours on end and come back every single day and you always see something else. There's some other facet to this, Lord, and I just thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. I pray, Lord, that in our lives, at this point in our study of book of Hebrews, that there would be one question that's settled and settled for all time in our hearts, Lord, that you are better than anything. And we don't need anything or anyone else besides you, Jesus. You are the very best. And you are so much better that they're not even in the same league as you. I pray that you would make that revelation to our young people, Lord, as they deal with peer pressure, as they deal with the world that's around them, that they would realize that we already have the very best. And so we are free to be whom you have created us to be in Christ Jesus, because that's the very best that I can be. I pray that you would reveal that to us in our lives, Lord, and that we would walk by faith, and we would hold fast to this faith to the very end. I thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you are blessed. I hope. (laughs) But you are dismissed for sure. And amen. So. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF podcast.